Good morning, everyone. We're going to be in Luke 5 today, starting in um, chapter 33, and I'm going to read that for you here. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning that you've given us. Every time that sun rises, it's just a reminder of your faithfulness. God, you're faithful to us. And you're faithful to redeem us and call us your own. You're faithful to give us new. Lord, thank you for what we just sang, that we are new in you, Lord. And God, we know that death is not something we need to be afraid of. Death has no mastery over us for those who are in Christ. We have the promise of heaven, the promise of eternal life, passion and purpose for this life. Father, thank you for the new that you breathe into us. Help us to grab a hold of that and understand that at even a deeper level today as we look again at the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we walk out of here not just with information, but transformation, becoming more like Jesus. That's our prayer. That's our request in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome again to CVC if you're online. So glad that you are with us right now. Hey, one of the things as I would look back on my childhood that I really... Uh, appreciated and enjoyed as a kid was taking baths. I loved being in a bathtub as a kid. Just something about filling up that little bathtub with hot water and putting like, you know, action figures, boats, some bubble bath in there. And I don't know why, but I remember my mom picked out like tutti fruity flavored like soap and hair wash and stuff. So even now, and if I catch a, you know, a, a sniff of like a tutti fruity, I'm like back in the bathtub as a kid, you know? And there's just something safe and comfortable and familiar about being in that nice tub of warm water. I would stay in that thing until the the water got cold or until I just was too wrinkled to, you know, like survive anymore. You know, I looked like a raisin. And I loved, I loved doing that as a kid. And as a kid, I also lived in Santa Cruz, California. And so I also loved going to the beach. And I loved getting on that sandy beach and walking along the shore. I loved getting sticks out and just poking at whatever I could find on the shore. I loved being on the beach. But that big, giant body of water called the ocean, yeah, I didn't want anything to do with that. I want to go back to the bathtub, man. This big thing is scary. It's loud. It's huge. It goes on forever. Like, it was colder than my bathtub. I didn't want anything to do with the ocean. It was just intimidating. Until one day, I started venturing out into the water. And as I started venturing out into the water, eventually it became less scary. And it became enjoyable. And it kind of enriched my life. Next thing I know, I'm learning how to splash in the ocean. And then I'm skimboarding on, you know, the, the wet sand. And I'm boogie boarding and snorkeling. And I enjoyed the ocean. It became kind of a life-giving experience. And even now, when I go to the ocean, it just kind of, you know, um, sparks all those memories. I love being by the ocean. You can hear the seagulls in the air. And the, the water is rhythmically splashing against your ankles. 
wrinkles, and it's just teeming with life. And so uh, the ocean became a life-giving, beneficial, good thing in my life. But at first it was scary until I got more familiar with it. Think of uh, similar concepts in your life. Where are areas of your life that maybe you were comfortable and you were familiar until something new was introduced that kind of scared you at first, kind of intimidated you, and at first you didn't want anything to do with it. But then as you kind of stepped into that, it became enjoyable, maybe life-giving, and beneficial to your life. It kind of made your life better, if you will. Uh, we see this with our kids and grandkids, right? Like the big first that are kind of scary. Like the first time a kid sees a dog, right? You see them just kind of stare, like, what is that thing, you know? Until they can learn to pet it and get licked on it, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the dog can be, sorry, all you cat people, you know, I'm a dog guy. So uh, the dog, or maybe it was the first time they rode a bike, like the thought of getting on that bike, especially if no one's holding on to it or they don't have training wheels, it's scary. But then once they learn how to ride a bike without help, it's like, woohoo, this is awesome. First time going to school. Like our life is full of all these experiences that kind of draw us out of comfort, draw us out of familiarity, draw us out of safety to something that's new and that can actually be good in our life. Like the first time you step onto a college campus or your first job, or maybe it was getting married or having kids. Like it's just new, but it becomes beneficial. You know, the same concept is true with our spiritual lives. Like all of us are raised in some sort of spiritual context, some sort of faith system. And it might be on one scale, it might just be like, I don't, hey, if you believe something, that's good. As long as you believe in something, that's good. Maybe that's your worldview, as we would call it. Or maybe over here, it's very structured, very rigid, lots of rituals, lots of things you have to do, lots of, you know, um, uh, practices and, and all those kinds. Of, maybe it's way over here. We, we have these spiritual worldviews that become familiar. They become comfortable. And then all of a sudden at some point, you hopefully have this life encountering uh, or this life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden he kind of challenges whatever you believe spiritually. And at first, Jesus can be new and a little bit scary, and he's kind of challenging maybe whatever system you come from, from a religious background. But as you start to feel the conviction of sin, as you start to realize that we violate God with our sinfulness and it's offensive to God, the way we think and the way we act and what we naturally desire, you start to get drawn into this relationship with Christ and at first what's scary becomes very familiar and embracing. And, and, and we look at all the change agents in our life. Like for me, getting into the ocean, that was a game changer. That was a change agent. You look at, you know, going to, going to school or those new relationships, a game changer. It's a change agent. Jesus isn't just a change agent. He's the change agent. He changes us. He changes uh, our hearts. He changes our minds. He changes, changes what we desire. He changes our worldview. And so he's the change agent. And today we're going to see him encounter more people, as we saw in the text that we just read, who are kind of going to push back on what he wants to change. And so we're going to learn a little bit more about who Christ is and what he does as we dive back into the book of Luke. And I invite you to open up to the passage that we just read in Luke 5. And we're going to look at those verses, 33 through 39. And uh, we're going to see how Jesus, as the change agent, still brings change in our lives. And the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus, as the change agent, changes rules to relationship. Let's see uh, verse 33 again. Just follow along. We'll just kind of read, teach, read, teach, read, teach. It says, and they, and we'll figure out who they is in a minute, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and 
drink. So we have this moment where this group of people are really challenging Jesus based on what they're observing in him and those who are following him. Because the disciples are like a reflection of what their teacher, the rabbi, is instructing them. And the observation they're making is, we fast, you don't. Well, who are these people? Uh, if we were, if you, this, uh, the book of Luke is, is one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I often say this and like to refer to the gospels like four different camera angles on the life of Jesus Christ. We appreciate in sports when we can watch four different angles on a play because you get to see something different from those angles. So this is the angle from Luke. But if we go to Mark, we get to see a little bit more about who these people are. So if you go to Mark 2, here's what we see from this moment, this camera angle. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And so here's the characters of play. Uh, John is a reference to a man known as John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a good guy. God sent him as a forerunner, as a person who was going to kind of prime the pump and get everybody ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. So he came preaching repentance. Turn, turn from your sin, turn to God. He came preaching about the kingdom of God. People were getting baptized by him, hence the name John the Baptist. And uh, they were looking forward to and getting ready for the coming of God's promised rescuer, redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior, who we know is Jesus Christ. And so part of their practice was to fast. Uh, most of them were Jews. This was part of their fasting uh, religious expression. The other group were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were legalists. Uh, they were and the term pharisaical comes from that. They basically had all these rules, all these systems that they had developed around the Jewish uh, faith, and then were holding people to those rules. And so the term disciples of the Pharisees is kind of a scary term. It's like Pharisees and training. Okay? It's, not, it's not a good thing. And so these people, some disciples of John, some disciples of the Pharisees, and these people observing this are coming to Jesus and going, we see the disciples of John fasting. We see the disciples of the Pharisees and the Pharisees fasting. Why don't you? So obviously we have to talk a little bit about fasting. Now, fasting is when we deprive ourselves of food, right, for a length of time because we desire something uh, different. Or it's an act of uh, devotion. So uh, fasting is most often rooted in grief. Like we fast when we feel convicted of sin. Sometimes we'll fast over the sinfulness. Like if you've got a sin that you can't shake, maybe it's time to not just pray, but to fast and pray uh, as a way to really go after that. Uh, if, if there were circumstances, when you look at the scripture, there were circumstances or situations that grieved the heart of God's people, they would, they would commit to a fast. And so we see that a lot of times it's rooted in that, or they're, they're longing for something that they're missing. They're longing for the Messiah, uh, Messiah. They're longing to go back to Jerusalem, whatever it is, they, they would fast. Well, eventually, um, they developed this habit of fasting, which, by the way, the only required fast in the Old Testament scriptures for the Jewish people was once a year. There was only one prescribed fast, and that was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is where the Jews would fast and Sabbath and seek God for repentance. Every other fast outside of that was voluntary. But what's happened is these guys eventually got to a point where they would fast 
twice a week. For whatever reason, they picked Mondays and Thursdays. There's some debate about why. So they thought they were super, like the super spiritual people, Monday fast, Thursday fast, and they made sure everybody knew it. The way they dressed, they had, you know, sackcloth on and ashes, and they wear long faces. It's like, it's like everybody knows you're fasting on Monday and Thursday. In fact, a lot of you that have read this passage in Luke 18, you see a Pharisee comparing himself to a tax collector, and he says, I fast twice a week, I give tithes, all, et cetera, et cetera. He says, I fast twice a week. He means he's fasting Mondays and Thursdays. It's the two-day fast that culturally came, you know, emerged. And even this passage, some wonder if what sparked this is just a few um, sections before, Jesus is hanging out with Matthew, a tax collector that we heard a couple weeks ago from Pastor Brian, and they had a meal together at Matthew's house. Some wonder if that meal was on either a Monday or a Thursday. And so they're saying, like, look, this is what we're supposed to fast, but you're not doing it. We've got this religious rule. You're not obeying it, which means you've got a spiritual malfunction. You're not a spiritual guy, which is kind of funny to think about. They're looking at God in the flesh. They're looking at Jesus going, well, you're definitely not spiritual. You know? And so we can see who's kind of in the wrong here. And what I love about Jesus is he's looking at their desire to impose their religious rules upon them, their legalism upon him, and he answers in a very profound way. And for those of you who've heard me on this before, I love how when the topic is like topic X, and then when Jesus answers to the question on topic X, he's like, hey, here's, here's like answer Z. And they're like, what? And so we see that next. Look, look how Jesus answers them in 534. So the, the question on the table, well, why don't you fast the way we fast? Jesus says to them, can you make the wedding guest? You just right now, you can just imagine these people going like, well, time out. We're at a wedding now? Really? We're talking about fasting, and now we're at a wedding. Okay, whatever. It says, can you make the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Jesus just launches from the set of religious rules into an interpersonal context. We're at a wedding now. The reason we go to weddings is because we love the people that are getting married, and we know the people. Wedding is a relational gathering. A wedding is a time we come to celebrate for people that we care about. So Jesus just launched from religious rules, you need to fast this way, to now we're at a wedding to celebrate the bride and groom. Jesus is saying, I'm the groom. I'm the groom. All my disciples, they're, they're my wedding guest. And basically what Jesus is getting at here is how weird would it be to show up to a wedding but act like you're at a funeral? So that's not going to work. And so can you imagine if you went to a wedding yesterday for a family member or a friend, and there was some group of people in the corner, and they were dressed in black, and then the women had like black veils over, and the dudes were all, you know, suited up, and they were just crying the whole time, and hugging each other, and just weeping, and you're like, I don't know if you know this, but like, we're at a wedding, <laughs> you're like at the funeral that should be down the street. Now maybe you had a family member that acted like that at your wedding, I'm sorry, um, we do know counselors that we can recommend for that family member. But do you see what Jesus is doing here? He, he's now saying, he's putting the spotlight on himself. He's putting the spotlight on a person, himself. He said, I'm the, I'm the groom. Why would I want my guests to fast when it's the time to feast? Because I'm with you. So when you're with me, it's time for feasting, not fasting. And he said, there's going to be a time 
when the fasting is going to come. He says, when the groom is taken. That's a reference to when Jesus is arrested, when Jesus is crucified, he's going to be taken from the presence of his guest, and then there'll be a time of fasting from Good Friday, if you will, to Easter. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be sadness. That'll be a time that this is appropriate. But right now, I'm in your midst. The person. So why would you fast? But the problem is they have these legalistic context that they're trying to uh, make Jesus uh, come around. Now, if you notice, Jesus is not commending fasting, nor is he condemning fasting. But if you study the teachings of Jesus, he assumes all his followers will fast. He doesn't command it. He doesn't condemn it. That's not the point. You know, he assumes all of us fast when we feel called to do so. Some of you are fasting right now for Lent. Hopefully, you're not doing it because, it's, well, it's time to do that. See, that, that's, that's the legalism creeping in, going, well, it's time to do that. We're supposed to do that, versus I get to celebrate the resurrection of my Savior. I don't want it to just feel like regular, same old, same old. So I'm going to enter into a season where maybe I'm going to deprive myself of things I enjoy to kind of shake it up, because I want to worship the resurrection of my Savior with, with freshness. With, like, that's the heart. That's the difference between a, a rule and a relationship. And so some of you are fasting right now because we know that uh, in two weeks on Easter, we're going to be sharing Christ with all uh, people that show up here. We know we get extra people. Some of you agreed to fast once a week with us just to say we're praying for people to come to the Lord on Easter Sunday. Those are fasts that revolve around the person, a relationship, not a set of rules, not legalism. I love what a new friend of ours named Daniel Henderson, he's a pastor and a great champion for prayer. He said this about legalism. He says, legalism is creating false standards of spirituality then judging others by those standards. That is what these people are doing. God has given us his word. God's given us his law and how we're supposed to live. Legalism is when we take something from God's word or we make it up and we create this other set of spiritual behavior and criteria and then we try to impose that upon everybody instead of saying we're called to do this. Some of you are listening to me right now going, okay, this is how God wants us to live, but there's these people out there that will create their own set of religious behavior and then impose that and judge you on that. And some of you are going, that's exactly what's happened in my life. You were, raised in, you were raised in some sort of spiritual context where as you started to read the Bible, you're going, this is not in here. This was created by somebody and now they're judging my eternity they're judging my relationship with Christ based on this stuff instead of this stuff. And so hopefully that's a realization of like, no, you're not, you're not, called. Jesus is going, you're not going to ask me why I don't do this. <laughs> that's what he's saying here. The sad part is some of us have also taken this and judged others by it instead of looking at this. And so this is the heart of what Jesus is doing. He is the change agent. And he's changing now rules, spiritual behavior to relationship. We, we do these things because we love the Lord, not to somehow get in with the Lord. So that's the first thing of change and newness that we see Jesus here doing. The second is we see that Jesus changes the old to new. To drive this concept down deeper about who he is and what he's bringing, he, bringing, he tells two parables. Uh, it says here, he uses two illustrations really in one parable. Look at verse 36. He's told them a parable no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. 
If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Uh, again, people are probably like, hey, why don't you fast like we, we do? And he's like, let's talk about weddings, and let's talk about clothing. And they're like, okay. Um, what we see here is in first century, and in many other cultures even today, people make their clothes. They just make their clothes, make their tunics, make their garments. We, we don't typically make our clothes. We go buy our clothes. So for the people who make their clothes, if they rip something, uh, they would patch it. Uh, we don't tend to do that, right? If we rip our clothes, we tend to go like, oh, that's fine. Or better yet, we'll go to a store and we'll pay more for clothes that are ripped and already look worn. <laughs> And so what Jesus is saying here, he says, you know, to this culture that understands this, like you make your clothes, if you rip your clothes, this is an old garment, you don't go and ruin a new garment by taking something off of it and ruining the new garment. You don't take a new piece of material and then try to put it on the old piece of material. Because what will happen is if you take the new material on the old material, when that garment gets wet, then the new material will do what? Shrink. And if it shrinks and it's sewn onto the old rip, what will happen to the old rip? It gets bigger. And so you, you can't take new material and put it on old material because it ruins the thing from the new material and now you just ruined your old material. That's, so he's saying, that's not going to work. It's not compatible. And then he drills this concept down even deeper. Look what he says next, verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. Right now, if you cook a nice dinner or go out to a nice dinner and you want to enjoy a glass of wine with that, you're going to go down to Giant Eagle or you're going to go to a store and you're going to grab a bottle of your preferred vintage and you're going to open that up and pair that with whatever you're cooking and enjoy your wine. They didn't have giant eagles back then, and nor did they have the bottles that they were putting wine in. They transported, carried, and made wine in wineskins. It was made out of animal hide. And so they would take the hide of a sheep or a goat, and they would sew together uh, this container that would hold liquid, and sometimes they'd even take the, the stomach of a sheep or a goat, and they would dry and purify that and use that, and that became a wineskin because it was made of the skin of animals. Here's the thing. It was made from new hide because new hide was flexible. And as the wine, as the new wine was poured into the wineskin, as it fermented, the gases would expand and contrast. So you needed a wineskin that could kind of go with the flow. It needed to be able to expand and contrast. The problem is the old wineskins, as, as the wineskins got older, they would start to dry up. They would start to get less flexible, and they were brittle. So if you poured new wine into an old wineskin, then it started to expand. What's going to happen? It's going to burst the brittle old wineskin. The double bummer, you bust your wineskin and lose that. Your wine spills on the ground, you lost that, double loss, right? So Jesus is using cultural context here saying, you don't take the new and put it on, and you don't take the new and put it in the old. Do you see what he's doing? They're stuck in their old way. They've got their bathtub that's comfortable, that's familiar. The water's the temperature they like. They like everything about it. Jesus is coming along going, look, I want to show you what it's like to swim in the ocean. And they're like, uh-uh, not having it. He's saying, I'm come to bring new 
but they're stuck in an old context. They have the system, and what they want to do is they want to take Jesus like a patch, and they want him to just kind of go with their system. They, they said, we're going to just attach you to what we're doing. Or they want to take Jesus and just pour him into their container of who they are and what they're doing. And he's saying, it's not compatible. My teaching and what I'm bringing is new. It's not based on works. It's based on grace. It's not based on rules. It's based on relationship. What I'm bringing now is not compatible with what you have. Jesus is changing the old to the new. He's not coming to reform. He's not coming to improve or make better. He's coming to make new. He's remaking. And this is where uh, we can start to see where our own hearts are getting hit on. Now, as Jesus is unpacking this to them, part of the point of what he's making is related to, and a lot of you know this, is called the new covenant. This is, let's, let's, let's kind of deep dive just a little bit for just a minute on the covenant. So if you're new in the Christian faith or you're not a Christian, you're like, what are you talking about? A covenant is an agreement between two parties. When you read the Bible, you see covenants between two individuals. You've seen covenants between two nations. Uh, when a man and woman get married, they make a covenant. They're making an agreement that's binding. Covenants are binding. And so like in a marriage, for example, it's not, oh, we're going to get, you know, we're going to stay together until we're tired of each other or until we don't feel warm fuzzies anymore. It's like, no, we just made a commitment before God that it's like until one of us takes our last breath, <laughs> uh, we're together. This, this is the nature of covenant. And so God has made a covenant with his people, but God initiated the covenant. It wasn't like the first people, you know, were hanging around going, Hey, God, we have an idea. We kind of want to make an agreement with you. God initiated the covenant. God initiated his covenant. So we see in the Bible uh, what's called the old covenant. By the way, another word that's very similar to covenant is the word testament. So the old covenant is also known in your Bible as the what? Old Testament. It's the way God made his commitment to his people before Jesus was born. Then the New Testament is the New Covenant. And so when you look at your Bible divided into these two sections, Old Testament before Christ was born, Old Covenant. New Testament, when Jesus was born, lived, died, the church after that, New Testament, New Covenant. And so God had this covenant that he initiated with his people, but he wanted a mediator over it. The mediator was known as a man named Moses. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant from God and his people. And it was based on the, the, the Judaic laws and the, and the uniqueness of the Jewish people. God says, I love you. I'm going to uh, work miraculously in you. I'm going to rescue you. And here's how I want you to live because of that. That's the old covenant. So why did God need a new covenant? Was it like, oh man, the old covenant didn't work. Well, let's try again. No, think of the covenants like this. Old covenant is like phase one. New covenant is like phase two. God knew he was going to do two covenants, and here's why. He knew the old covenant would make his people unique, that there would be an agreement between them, but here's the thing about rule keeping and ritual and sacrifice and old covenant reality. It doesn't change the heart. Rules don't have the ability to change the heart. Look, if you work with kids, if you're a teacher, or if you have kids or grandkids, or you're around kids, let me ask you a question. Can they obey your rules but their heart not be in it? 
Let me ask you that again, because I don't know if you, can kids comply with you, but actually not have their heart in it? Yes. They can absolutely obey rules. Hey, take out the trash. Okay. They obeyed you, but was their heart in it? I'd love to take out the trash. Yes, that's awesome. No. Most kids, you know, find themselves like we do when, when rules are put upon us. We can obey the rules, but our heart isn't changed. God says, I'm going to implement the old covenant because it's going to you know, draw my people to myself. It's not necessarily going to change their heart. And then I'm going to bring the new covenant through a new mediator, new mediator, and it's going to change their hearts. And so when Christ came, Jesus was the mediator of the new covenant. It was going to be founded in his life and death. And in his blood, so when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus rose from the grave, yes, our sins are forgiven for those who believe in Christ. Yes, our souls can go to eternity in heaven because we believe in Christ, but it's also Jesus ushering in this new covenant, new arrangement with his people that now, because the Holy Spirit of God is going to come to live in you, actually changes your heart. It's a heart transplant. And so this is what Jesus is saying. I've got this new wine, this new covenant, this grace that's not going to be compatible with the old system. So I'm going to make it new. I'm not going to patch it. I'm not going to repair it. I'm going to make it new. And then you and I are born into this new covenant where the old covenant's valuable and it's important, but we get to live with the value of the old covenant, but we get to live walking in the new covenant. It's a beautiful gift from God. This is what Jesus is saying as he's unpacking the covenants. Now, he says something very profound in verse 39. A lot of people are confused when they see this verse. Verse 39 says, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says the old is good. What Jesus is basically saying here is you can't teach old dogs new tricks. He's saying, I'm bringing the new. I'm coming to make old new. But people who love the old don't want the new. They're stuck. They're comfortable. Their hearts haven't changed. And at this point in time, they're not on a path to have their hearts change. And so when we read that, we hear about two people. We hear about the audience he was talking to at the time who was resistant to his message. And we also hear about ourselves. Because when Jesus comes to make um, new what was old, it's also a reference to our life. God is in the business, if you will, of making new. I just want to rapid fire a few verses that capture this. This is some samplings from Scripture about the heart God has to do new things. When you hear, when you see the word new, say it with me, all right? So in Isaiah 43, 19, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is what he's talking about, this heart transplant. I'm going to take their stony heart and make it pliable, flexible, something that can be worked with. Ephesians 4 says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Tying this concept to the covenant, like we talked about in Luke 22, when Jesus was getting ready to be 
arrested that night and crucified. It says he took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. It's the new covenant in his blood. And then one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Look at that verse for a second and wrap your mind around that. That's what Jesus does to us. Think about how uninspiring and how incorrect and how flat it feels if you got a Sharpie pin out and scratched out the word new and put the word improved. If anyone's in Christ, they're an improved creation. Or maybe better. If everyone's in Christ, they're a, they're a better creation. See, Jesus didn't come to make us better. He came to make us new. And so with that comes heart transplant. But the problem is some of us are stuck. You're stuck in the bathtub with the water you like, the temperature you like, the toys you like, and you're not willing to swim in the ocean that God has for you of new life in Christ. You, you, you've got an old garment, and you just want to put Jesus onto it. You have your wineskin, your old way of thinking, and you just kind of want Jesus to pour himself into your context. He's not going to do that. He wants to make you new. So when Jesus changes us, he doesn't improve. Like, we've got this self-help society, right? Jesus didn't come as a self-help resource. He came as the transformer, the change agent. And so he doesn't improve our mind, improve our heart, improve our attitude, improve us. He comes to make us new. We get a new mind. We think different. You get a new heart. Your love changes. What you love, how you love, what you long for, what you desire changes. Like what you live for and die for changes. That's what it means to have new life in Christ. That's what Jesus is talking about right here. But we have to be all in. You just can't kind of try Jesus. I love what Bible teacher and author K. Arthur says about this. She says, if you do not plan to live the Christian life totally committed to knowing your God and to walking in obedience to him, then don't begin. For this is what Christianity is all about. It's a change of citizenship, a change of governments, a change of allegiance. If you have no intentions of letting Christ rule your life, then forget Christianity. It's not for you. You're going, ah, that's kind of dropped the mic crazy, right? Right as Jesus did this, he's like, he didn't say, oh, please follow me, please follow me, please follow me. He says, this is what it takes to follow me. Come, you who will follow. Come who wants new. Some of you have your hearts tied to the old. You still have your hearts locked into the old. It's familiar. It's comfortable. And you haven't abandoned that and let your heart fall in love with Christ and the new that he brings. I want a question for you. I want you to assess your life. Reflect on this question and ask yourself this. What old tradition, what old practice, what old prejudice, what old way of thinking or living is keeping you from experiencing the new life Christ has made possible. Because if you're not experiencing the power and the hope and the joy and the newness of Christ, then maybe you are still in love with and holding on to something old. When Jesus has made available to you new. He's given us new life. Now honestly, the old life tries to rear its ugly head. The old life tries to kind of get in there and mess with us. It pops up every now and then. We can admit that. But you know what? We're not dominated by the old anymore. 
We're not enslaved. We don't have to obey. We just kick it in the head, put it back in the grave, right? Jesus has made us new. So when you assess your life, where are you hanging on to the old that's keeping you from experiencing what Christ has for you? <laughs> Derwin Gray, uh, another pastor, said it well. He said, being born again happens in an instant. Learning to live as a child of God takes a lifetime. <laughs> Some aspects of being new in Christ come online right away. Some are just going to happen over the course of time through God's process of sanctification. So don't be discouraged that everything didn't just flip on, you know, flip new like that. Sometimes things just take time. But we have to just keep walking with Christ, loving Christ, letting him work that stuff out of us. When I was a kid, I felt comfortable in the bathtub. The ocean scared me. But then the ocean became life-giving. As a person who didn't know Christ, the thought of God, God either was big and scary to me or he was just uninteresting or uninvolved until I let Christ into my life. And then he just made me new. He gave me new hope, new joy, new peace, new passion, new purpose. That's what he does with us. You know, there was a woman that showed up here about a year ago, and I heard her story. I'm like, we have to share and brag on Jesus with what he does. And she was courageous enough to share her story with us, but she's still a little shy about being known, so she, she said, please don't share my name. So for the sake of our time, her name today is Cindy, <laughs> okay? I want to tell you about Cindy's life. She showed up here about a year ago with a particular wineskin, with a particular garment, with a particular bathtub, if you will, of thinking, and Jesus just changed it. And so the words on the screen were written by her. And one of our staff people read it so that we can kind of hear it come to life. And so let's hear the new that Jesus did in her life. I'm a retired widow. As a child, my family attended the Catholic Church, but religion was only a Sunday thing. I had no real understanding of religion or who God or Jesus Christ was or how to pray anything but wrote prayers. I never read the Bible. In fact, it was stored in a closet. I didn't even know what sin was. My thoughts and my actions were centered on self, not on God. My journey to saving faith began when I attended Grief Share at CVC in February of 2018 at the recommendation of a friend. My husband had passed away very suddenly and a matter of weeks later, my favorite aunt, to whom I was very close, also passed away. The two most important people in my world were gone and I was a lost soul. I knew I needed help and decided to give Grief Share a try, even though I was angry with God for taking my loved ones from me. I attended all 13 weeks of the class and at the conclusion, I had a slight feeling that maybe there was something here for me, but I wasn't ready to admit that to myself. So I went back to Grief Share in September and began to realize that there were people there who, in spite of their losses, were still so very thankful to God for His love during their time of grief. And it was then that I began to realize they had something that I needed and wanted. On October 14, 2018, on what would have been my 23rd wedding anniversary, I decided to make it a new anniversary, and I attended my first Sunday service at CVC. Then one Sunday in November, Actually, the day after the one-year anniversary of my husband's death, 
I was thinking about the fact that I had made it through the previous day without any tears, and I actually felt good. And suddenly it was like a light bulb went off, and I realized that God had entered my heart, and that was why I felt such peace. At CVC, we were studying the Apostles' Creed at the time, and Pastor Chad was teaching on the Holy Spirit and how God sends the Spirit to be with us forever. And what a confirmation that was of what I had experienced the day before, and happy tears just flowed. I said out loud to no one but God, and my dogs and cats, that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And since that day, I have never looked back. Ask me today if I'm going to heaven, and I say, yes. I confess to all that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was sent by God, his Father, to suffer and die on the cross and to save all who believe in him from their sins. I know that Jesus is my Savior. My sins have been forgiven and that I am saved and I'll have eternal life with him in heaven. Now, today, I feel like a sponge. I want to soak up everything I can about God, about Jesus Christ, and the Bible. I've joined both a mixed and a ladies' Bible study, and um, a new CVC friend meets regularly with me for one-on-one discipleship, which I truly enjoy. I bake for CVC events. I volunteer with our food pantry. And I've even returned for a third session of Grief Share, not because I still need help with my grief, but rather to be an inspiration to those just beginning their grief journey. I also want to experience Grief Share from the perspective of a new Christian. I have new ears to hear now. The biggest change is that I have found a sense of peace that I have never felt before. I know that God is walking beside me, and I never have to feel alone. I think I've become a better person, and I try to be the person God wants me to be. I read the Bible, and I pray for wisdom to understand His Word. And I know God is with me and leading me down a new and wonderful path. If anyone had told me a year ago that I would be where I am now, I would have said they were crazy. But as I have learned, with God in the driver's seat, all things are possible. Amen. Isn't Jesus awesome? I love our mission statement. We call it to invite people to new life in Christ. And her story is just that new life in Christ is all over it. And you see how God used his people and his word and his spirit to draw her in. Most of you have experienced that. Most of you know what that's like. And hopefully today has been a reminder for you, a refresher for you, that you are made new in Christ. Don't let the old rob you of the new life in Christ God has for you. So whatever old you know, behavior pattern, whatever it is that your heart still, just get rid of it and, and, and draw closer to Christ. But there's probably some of you that have never given your life to Christ. And you've been hearing today about how much God loves you and how Jesus loves you. He's inviting you into that new relationship. And whether you're online right now or here, I just encourage you to, to surrender to this new life in Christ that he offers you. And all you have to do is basically say what you heard me say and, and, and her say. It's just like, 
You come to a place where you say, I'm sinful, I'm lost, I need God, I need Jesus. Just say, I need you, Jesus. Come into my life, I want to follow you. I love the fact that her story and several other people's stories that we know, um, they were in a car, in their house, and they just gave their life to Christ, and they got in touch with us to let us know that they're now following Jesus, and then we help them grow. And so we want to help you grow in your new relationship with Christ, but we need to know uh, who you are. So in your response card in your program, there's a place where you can put your phone number and email and just say, I've given my life to Christ. And we'll get in touch with you and help you grow and walk just like these people did in her life. We're also praying for people right now that we know and love that don't know Jesus. Hopefully today we'll also add fuel to your prayers and your hope that those people will come and experience the new that Jesus has for us. Because again, he didn't come to just make us better, make us improve. Jesus came to make us new. So let's walk in that new life in Christ. I just want to spend a few minutes here wrapping it up in prayer. And we're just going to thank the Lord for this. And I'm going to give you a couple ways that you can pray. Let's just pray for a few minutes about what we've heard today. Would you join me, please? Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and how it's, it just pierces our hearts. Lord, I pray all of us are walking out of here with an understanding and an appreciation of the new life in Christ you've given us. You've empowered us to walk new. You've given us your Holy Spirit. If we love Jesus and believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God is in us and empowers us to live new. Lord, we know that um, you're not just going to do a hostile takeover and make us, but that we have to respond to the nudges of your spirit to do so. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, we confess that sometimes we drift to the old. <laughs> help us keep walking in the new. Thank you that we have new life in Christ. In fact, would you just take a minute as believers in Christ, and would you just thank the Lord? Just say, thank you, Lord that uh, the old is gone? And would you identify a couple of the old parts of your life that are now gone? And just thank the Lord for the new that he's brought. Would you just take a minute and thank the Lord for that? faithfully praying for this person that we feel God's opened a door of connection with. We're calling it who's your one. And would you just take a minute to pray for that one person you feel drawn to? There's a, there's a prayer guide on the screen if you need that. It's from our 30-day prayer guide that we've handed out about how to pray for that one person. This is from today's reading. Just take a minute just to pray for that person that they would experience a new life in Christ and surrender to Christ. Jesus' name, and we all said together.